Today, May 40 here, we had a Democratic congressional candidate saying that uh, all men should have a right to sex. Should that be part of our Bill of Rights coming up on the show? First of all, here's some Tucker Carlson. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson. Say, what's that sound you hear? Oh, it's the sound of America getting a little better. You can feel it happening. Last time we played you a clip from an unintentionally hilarious MSNBC town hall in which some pompous airhead reporter tries her best to explain to Trump voters why January 6th actually was an insurrection. An insurrection in which only the police had guns inside the Capitol. An insurrection in which the police welcomed the insurrectionists inside the building to insurrect. Quite an insurrection. Of course, an insurrection that went nowhere, where the leader was dressed in Viking horns and eating psilocybin mushrooms. So we thought it was pretty funny. What we didn't note, though, last night was the moment where that airhead reporter claims that a police officer was killed by the mob that day. Now, if you watch television, you've heard that line so many times, so many times that you may not even notice when people say it anymore. They've been saying it constantly for nearly two years. Police officers were killed, many of them. Why are they saying that? It's not true. It's provably a lie. It is in no sense accurate. No police officer was killed by the mob on January 6th. Anyone who claims otherwise is always welcome on this show live to explain who exactly was killed. What's that officer's name and how was he killed? We didn't expect any takers on that offer. So the question is, why do they keep telling us that? Well, there's a reason. There's always a reason. They're telling us that likely so we won't ask too many questions the next time we read about yet another January 6th protester going to jail. We'll just think, oh, another cop killer getting what he deserves. That's what they're hoping you will think. And they're hoping that because if you knew the truth, if you knew why they're really going to jail, you'd be very concerned. And here is the truth. Joe Biden's Justice Department is imprisoning people for having the wrong thoughts, thoughts that we all imagined were constitutionally protected, as all thoughts are. But don't take our word for it. That's just a right-wing talking point on a cable channel. You can read the court filings in January 6th cases over the past year and a half. And in virtually every instance, federal prosecutors argue in public that the political views of the defendants, not anything they actually did, not crimes they committed, but instead their personal beliefs, what they think, those beliefs are reason enough to put them behind bars. According to Joe Biden's DOJ, for example, Army veteran Jessica Watkins needed to be detained indefinitely because she had, quote, extremist and violent views regarding how to address what she believed to be a fraudulent election. Oh, she was an extremist. It's a term they never explain, but that apparently is now a crime. So we decide what extremist means, and then we put you in jail for being one. That's how that works. UCLA student Christian Secor, that was the guy who sat in Mike Pence's chair on January 6th, and we put you in jail, is now in prison. And he should be in prison, explained the Biden administration's lawyers, because he had, quote, extremist beliefs and a, quote, history of adhering to extremist ideology. Really? Again, you decide what extremist is and then put me in prison for being one. In the case of Robert Morse, that was the guy who was busted in possession of a Lego set of the Capitol. The DOJ put it this way, quote, it is difficult to fathom a more serious danger to the community than someone who tried to, quote, abort the certification of a lawful and fair election, end quote. It's the one kind of abortion they don't favor, the aborting of a fair and free election. So in every case, though, the defendant's real crime was not aborting an election. No, the real crime, and the DOJ says it right in the filings, is denying the outcome of the election. It was believing the wrong thing. 
It was not believing that a senile man who refused to leave his basement during the campaign somehow got more votes than any president in American history. If you refuse to believe that, you're now a felon. Question the system and they haul you away. Those are the rules now, as hundreds of imprisoned Republicans can personally testify if they could speak. So the legal precedent has been established. You cannot deny elections. And yet, even in the face of the mounting evidence, this is now a very serious felony, there are some extremists who are not deterred. They're continuing to commit the crime of election denial, and they're bold enough to do it on video. Here, ladies and gentlemen, is one of them. I know we're all focused on the 2022 midterm elections, and they are incredibly important. But we also have to look ahead, because you know what? Our opponents certainly are. Right-wing extremists already have a plan to literally steal the next presidential election. And they're not making a secret of it. The right-wing controlled Supreme Court may be poised to rule on giving state legislatures, yes, you heard me that correctly, state legislatures the power to overturn presidential elections. Did you hear that? Right-wing extremists will literally, literally, you must teach that word in NPR, literally steal the next election. So that's preemptive election denial committed by Hillary Clinton herself. But here's the thing. Probably not likely that an FBI SWAT team is going to show up at Hillary Clinton's house when she's in the shower tomorrow morning. And in fact, the next time a courthouse is attacked in Portland, Oregon, or a church is torched in downtown Washington, D.C., it's unlikely that a DOJ court filing will cite what Hillary Clinton just said as an extremist ideology that led to violence. Why is that? Well, because in the considered opinion of the Democratic Party and the DOJ, it's not election denial when they do it. No, it's just election-affirming care. And there's been a lot of election-affirming care going around these past few weeks. In Washington, in the hometown newspaper owned by Jeff Bezos, the Washington Post, Max Boot just announced that, we're quoting, if the current trends hold up, Republicans are likely to take over at least the House and quite possibly the Senate, too, along with many state offices. This is how democracies die, both at home and abroad. <laughs> In other words, <laughs> if you vote for the wrong person, that's not democracy, which, by the way, unlike dictatorship, does not always come to the conclusion that you favor. That's not democracy. That's the death of democracy. Democracy dies in both darkness and non-liberal election outcomes. Oh, okay. New York Magazine isn't waiting around for the next election. Here's their latest dispatch. Quote, there are already signs of 2020 election deniers refusing to accept their own possible defeat this year. And that's half true, of course, but New York Magazine isn't talking about Republicans. Quote, most observers are primarily worried that Trump's 2020 shenanigans may have served as a dress rehearsal for 2024. Wait, what? So that means you have Democrats two years before the presidential election telling us that that election is going to be rigged. But that's not undermining confidence in elections? That's not an attack on our sacred norms? Not when it happens in New York Magazine or at PBS, which, by the way, you continue to fund with your tax dollars, a channel nobody watches. The only people who watch PBS are the ones who are stuck in traction and the attendants going out for a cigarette and taking the remote. But they're still broadcasting. 
And here's what they're saying, quote, nearly one in three Republican candidates for statewide office support false election claims. So why aren't they in prison? And what is the end game of these dangerous extremists led by Donald Trump? Well, Vanity Fair figured it out. They blew the plan wide open, quote, and then there's Donald Trump, Vanity Fair reported. He hasn't been implicated in any murders that we know of, nor is he currently trying to kill anyone, again, that we know of. He is, however, said to be actively plotting to steal the midterm elections and the presidential one after that. End quote. Did you hear that? Donald Trump is going to steal the midterm elections and then the presidential election. How is he going to do that? And isn't predicting he's going to do that? Isn't that itself a crime? We can't say. We're not Merrick Garland. But we do know how he's going to do it, because Hillary Clinton's been giving that away for years. Donald Trump is going to do that, as he always has done it, with help from Vladimir Putin himself. Watch. We know the Russians hacked the DNC, hacked my campaign, etc. Trump knows he's an illegitimate president who got illegitimate foreign help. I do think that he knows uh, that... Uh, He's an illegitimate president. I believe he knows he's an illegitimate president. You can run the best campaign. You can even become the nominee. And you can have the election stolen from you. Stolen from you by Putin? We better have a nuclear war with him. Oh, we're moving toward that. Too bad every Republican leader in Washington is for it. How dumb are these people? But if you take three steps back, you will note that nothing... The January 6th defendants have ever said, even the guy with the Viking horns on acid, nothing they've said is half as crazy as what you just heard Hillary Clinton say. In federal courtrooms, January 6th defendants are being sentenced to prison because they're not exactly sure how it is that Joe Biden got 15 million more votes than Barack Obama did. Barack Obama, the most, the rock star who is president, and yet his vice president was so stupid that even Barack Obama could barely stand to be in the same room as him, got 15 million more votes than he did. How did that work? How did Joe Biden get more votes than any president in American history? Is that not a fair question? No, it's not. It's a crime to ask. And yet no one bats an eye when Hillary Clinton tells us that Putin is literally going to steal the election. So how is it that only one side is allowed to deny the results of elections? Okay. No one answers that. Here's Joe Biden claiming that Democrats don't question election results. This is a nation that believes in the rule of law. We do not repudiate it. This is a nation that respects free and fair elections. We honor the will of the people. We do not deny it. <laughs> we do not deny it. Unless, of course, two weeks out from a pivotal midterm election, we get the sense based on polling that we're about to be spanked like the bad little girls we are, at which point we start making excuses and planting the seeds for more election denial, just as we did after Donald Trump won. That's exactly what's going on now. Even as they try to destroy the careers and tear down the character of people who ask honest questions about the last election, and that would include Ron Johnson, who is the senator from Wisconsin, the Republican, one of the very few Republicans in the entire U.S. Senate who was actually improved every year that he served there. That's the opposite of the normal progression for Republicans in the Senate, in case you haven't noticed. Now, Ron Johnson is running against someone who's legitimately far out. His name is Mandela Barnes. On Twitter, Barnes once rang in the new year by praising, and few politicians do this, by praising Iran's Ayatollah because he supports BLM. And we're quoting... The first tweet of 2015 from at 
Khomeini IR is Black Lives Matter. Let that sink in. <laughs> May this be a most wonderful year for you and yours, Barnes wrote. So he's got the Ayatollah vote. Barnes also wants to abolish ICE, defund the police, and end cash bail. So that would result in further chaos and the total destruction of American society. Might be worth following up on that. But no, the media in Wisconsin are still talking about Ron Johnson's election denial. Here's his hometown newspaper, which no one reads in fairness, attacking him the other day for it. Quote, election deceiver, science fabulist, billionaire benefactor. After 12 years, it's time to turn limit Senator Ron Johnson. So again, just to be clear, Democrats are sending people to prison for questioning the last election, trying to prevent people from getting elected in the midterm election for questioning the last election, while at the very same time telling you that the 2016 election was rigged, the midterm will likely be rigged, and we know for a fact the 2024 election is not on the level. How does this work exactly? Senator Ron Johnson joins us tonight. Senator, thanks so much for coming on. Um, it's, is it a little weird to be attacked by your hometown newspaper? Okay, I don't think we need to hear from any politicians. Let's go to the chat. Hope Mr. Ford will address the perennial mystery of female sexuality. Well, in the first year of a relationship, this is also my empirical experience. Women are approximately almost equally as interested in sex as the men. It's just after that first year, women's interest in sex just drops off a cliff. But in the first year of a relationship, if I want to have sex three times a day, 80% of the time, the women are down with having sex uh, three times a day. But I've never been able to sustain a relationship longer than a year. Maybe maybe it's because women's interest in, in sex just falls off a cliff after that that first year. Did I see that New York Times... October 17, peace. Half the world has a clitoris. Why don't doctors study? Yeah, I did read that. And it's the most boring article I've ever read about clitorises. I mean, clitorises are fascinating. Like, clitorises, their only evolutionary purpose is to give pleasure. Like, what other parts of the body are just purely pleasure centers? Uh, only the clitoris. But yet, somehow, the New York Times managed to get an incredibly boring uh, story out of it. Sad. So many interesting things to, to say about clitorises, and yet New York Times didn't really bring it. All right. Uh, bad news, guys. Hollywood, uh, no, the Holocaust Museum, right? Holocaust Museum, Los Angeles invited Kanye West to a private tour. Now the museum is a, a target of anti-Semitic attacks. Wow. So they were trying to fundraise off Kanye West's mental illness and they got blowback. Wow, who would ever thought that uh, speaking out on hot-button issues would cause blowback? And most important point there is absolutely nothing. Zip, zero, zilch about touring a Holocaust museum or watching a Holocaust movie or reading a Holocaust book that's going to make you a better person. There's nothing inherent in surviving a genocide or surviving a Holocaust that's going to make you a better person. You don't become more empathic. You don't become kinder and finer by touring Holocaust museums or slavery museums. And I notice in the news media, there, there are all these stories talking about what experts say with regard to Kanye West and anti-Semitism. So Los Angeles Times, Kanye West celebrity gives his brazen anti-Semitism a more toxic power and reach. Some experts say it's deeply troubling 
for such vitriolic hate speech to come from a celebrity of Kanye West caliber. And it brings with it the danger of emboldening others. So how exactly does one get to be an objective designated expert in anti-Semitism? I mean, anti-Semitism is just another aspect of group conflict. And who, by the way, are the objective designated experts in anti-Gentilism, right? So just as some non-Jews have negative feelings about Jews, shockingly, some Jews have negative feelings about Gentiles. You can call it anti-Gentilism. Why doesn't it even get a term? Who are the designated experts in anti-Christianity? What about in conservophobia or being anti-white, right? Who are the designated experts in the great bigotry of being anti-white? Like, who decides? I'd like to stand up. You can make me designated expert in anti-Gentilism. So I think much of these Kanye West stories are just all about fundraising. Right? The Holocaust Museum thinks, oh, we'll, we'll be able to fundraise off this. Right? It, it's genuine conflicts of interest between groups that drives violence between groups. It's not rhetoric. People aren't being emboldened by, by the rantings of this mentally ill rapper. Kanye's story also illustrates that we are fundamentally social creatures, and when people start organizing against us, we are in big trouble. So when I was listening to Duvid last night, I kept thinking that the very opposite of what he's saying is is true, that I can't think of any famous person in America who's been able to publicly maintain a Jewish critical perspective for very long. They all cave from, from Mel Gibson to Jesse Jackson, And I don't think Kanye West is going to keep up his jihad against the Jews. I mean, Kanye West is in trouble. He's not going to ride this out without changing course. And so Adidas just uh, dropped him today. His CAA, his talent agency dropped him. More and more people are dropping him. There's no way he's going to be able to keep this up. Was what the New York Times reported about the clitoris not disturbing? Yes, yes, it was. I mean, ignorance that leads to horrific medical treatment is is disturbing. So ignorance in and of itself, not disturbing. But ignorance that leads to horrifying, inept medical treatment is disturbing. Uh, Dudu says, surprised Adidas dropped Kanye so quick. Dropped him so quick, they took about two weeks to drop him. Yes, they're going to suffer hundreds of millions of dollars in losses. They'd suffer even more if they didn't drop him. Right? So sometimes you've got a bad girlfriend or a bad spouse, and to drop the person is going to be tremendous trouble. Or sometimes you've got a difficult client, or you've got some kind of difficult connection that's going to be very, very painful if you sever it. But it'll be even more painful and more dangerous if you don't sever it. So we're all social creatures. Like when I just stand here doing a show and let's say 20 people are watching my show or disagreeing with what I say, it takes a little bit of strength to perpetuate myself and to keep going with my point. So we all get cues from other people. There's no way that uh, Kanye is going to publicly maintain his his anti-Jewish attitudes. And when did we as a society decide that being anti-Jewish was the worst thing ever, but being anti-Christian was a good thing? Being anti-conservatives is is a good thing. Being anti-white is a good thing. Uh, how how did that happen? Like, wh- when did we when did we decide that uh, being anti-Jewish is just like the, the worst thing ever?
Okay. Subject topic. The right to sex. This opinion piece was written by Christine Emba. A right to sex is not the cure for what ails so many men. Last year, a best-selling essay collection titled The Right to Sex argued thoroughly and effectively that, as appealing as such an unconventional idea might sound to frustrated, sex-deprived men, there is in fact no such thing. And with that, you might have thought that the idea had been put to bed. But think again. Young men aren't having sex, tweeted activist and former Pennsylvania Democratic congressional candidate Alexander Hunt last week, setting off an internet firestorm. Hunt cited a graph clipped from a 2019 Post article. Nearly a third of men under 30 have not had sex, she continued. And a higher percent do not have as much sex as they'd like, not exactly surprising, but this kind of statistic is a sign of much deeper problems. The graph, it's worth noting, was being mischaracterized. The statistic refers to men who had not had sex over the past year, not their entire lives. Right, so this idea that somehow there should be some sort of constitutional right to sex is obviously ridiculous. Who's going to provide the sex? I mean, you could say sex workers. But, I mean, what about the tremendous rates of, of sexual dysfunction, men who, who can no longer get it up? I mean, I just don't think state-sponsored sex work is going to be the solution here. So it's not only not the right prescription, it's not even the right diagnosis because sex does not equal intimacy. So for, for most of the women that I've had sex with, it was the culmination of a sustained period of emotional intimacy that led up to it, and then the sex just increased the intimacy. But when I went to interview Kit and Natividad and we hooked up as I was saying goodbye, that did not increase the intimacy between us. Uh, sometimes I've been surprised by sex, wasn't expecting to have sex. I was kind of seduced into having sex, and it just made me want to run away from the woman. So, you know, after I got over my, my animal urges, I wanted to create more and more distance. So th there's no inherent connection between intimacy and sex. So if you have built a solid foundation, yes, then sex can lead to more intimacy. But this idea that a, a right to sex will somehow cure men's ills, you know, just assumes that depression, nihilism, and, you know, lousy economic results are a serious problem that will be eliminated with you know more sexual encounters right so what lack of connection all right and just having sex with hookers is not going to solve that lack of connection so connection universal human need but there are other avenues for intimacy other than sex and frequently, they are far more valuable to pursue, such as friendship, family, community, real relationships. Right? So it all goes back, however, to what's going on in our central nervous system. Uh, the, those of us who have struggled with loneliness, loneliness is our evolved response to keep us safe. Right? The, the outside world is such a dangerous, scary place that many of us have evolved patterns of kind of distancing ourselves from other people, and those patterns are not so easy to overcome. And so loneliness is not overcome by being around people or having sex. Loneliness is overcome when you develop a sense of ease with yourself that then translates into a sense of ease with other people. So when you become ready to leave the cave because you have rewired how you respond to stimuli, then, right, then you might get some the measure of progress from the great ill of loneliness. So Sam Backnan, 
studies Gnosticism. Here he is. So my view, what are your views on on such things as cancel culture and the whole woke movement and trying to keep all narratives politically correct? What's your view on this? Where is this leading us? It's not my view. It's the view of uh, clinical psychology. In the past few years, we have begun to study victimhood movements and the psychology of victimhood movements. So we have, for example, studies by Gabay, G-A-B-A-Y, and allies, four, four massive conducted mainly in Israel. We have studies in British Columbia and so forth, and Alzheimer's for you. What we're beginning to find is that certain people are prone to adopt victimhood as an identity. Their victimhood is their identity. Their victimhood endows their life with meaning, makes sense of the world. So it's an organizing principle. They would seek to be victims, even in situations where they would not have been victimized otherwise. When they are not victimized, they push you to victimize them. This is called projective identification. And so there is something called TIV. TIV is a new psychological describing these kind of people. You can see these people online, for example, in the empaths movement and other nonsensical labels, where these people are actually very narcissistic, very grandiose, extremely aggressive, lacking in them of any kind, and yet they claim that they have been victimized all their lives because they are super empathic and they are sensitive and so forth, and they are proud of their victimhood. They compete with each other. My abuser was much worse than your abuser. No, my abuse was unprecedented. I understand that you were abused. I'm sorry for you, but my abuse was much... It's identity politics. It becomes identity politics. A separate set of studies in Canada and elsewhere has shown that very fast, very soon, within usually two to three years maximum, victimhood movements such as Me Too, Black Lives Matter, and so on, get hijacked by narcissists and psychopaths. So the infiltration of narcissists and psychopaths is universal in all these victimhood movements, and they become the public face of the movement. Victim of movements are one of the most threatening and pernicious developments. There, there is a sociologist by the name of Campbell, and he said that we have transitioned from the age of dignity to the age of victimhood. It's very dangerous because if you are a perennial victim, if this is your identity, you are determined by your victimhood, you would tend to develop attendant behaviors. For example, you would tend to feel entitled to special treatment. And if the, you don't get this special treatment, you will become aggressive. And this is the irony. This was first described by Kaufman. There's a guy called Kaufman. And he described what he called the drama triangle. And he said abusers, the drama triangle includes abuser, victim, and rescuer or savior. But he said these roles are not fixed. When the victim is not gratified by the rescuer, she becomes an abuser. And when the abuser witnesses the behavior of the rescuer, he tries to be the rescuer. So everyone cycles. What I'm trying to say is that the potential for aggression and even violence in victimhood movements is much larger than in the general population. And even I would go as far as saying that it's equal to psychopathic movements. For example, the Nazi movement, equal. Of course, the Nazism was a victimhood movement. Nazis presented themselves as victims of the Versailles Agreement, of the World Order, Germany was discriminated against, and, so and look on where it led. Similarly, communism was a victimhood movement. The proletariat was exploited by the landowners and by the industrialists and so on. We need to redress grievances. Anything that is grievance-based leads to violence and death. End of story. All death cults started as victimhood movements. ISIS is no exception. So it's dangerous. And let's go to the chat. Laponius says, filthy 40. 
Hot and horny, went to the bathtub for sex, but he wasn't alone when daddy came home and thought he took a cold shower instead. That's pretty much what happened. I just, you know, just, just met this lovely Jewish woman who was just, you know, prodigiously endowed with, you know, such an amazing personality. And, like, I was all preparing this hot and wet time in my father's bathtub, and we're splashing around in there, and... He, you know, I thought my parents were gone at church. I was living with my parents at the time. And then I hear like the crunch of tires on the driveway and I can't like, you know, running down the hallway naked, like looking out the door and it's like, oh no, my stepmother's come home. Then I go like running back to my, you know, father's uh, bathtub and, and tell her, oh, you got to get out, you know, you know, go hide in your room. And, you know, then I go like jump in my 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 bed and, and then my mother comes along and she, she knocks on the door and says, you know, what were you doing in, in your father's uh, bathtub? And I said, oh, I took a shower and, you know, maybe Diana was, you know, needed to take a shower too. And so my mother says, stay out of your father's room. Oi, so, so shameful, so shameful. How did, how did Laponius know uh, about, about what happened there? I thought, I thought I'd kept it all, all a secret. So yeah, the power of victimhood. Right? If you feel like you've been victimized, then there are no moral restraints on you. I, I felt like I'd been victimized by six years of chronic fatigue syndrome. And so when I managed to make a partial recovery from that at age 27, I just felt like, you know, all restraints, you know, aside from legal and, and basic moral ones were gone. So I just went to town. So my, my first year of uh, partial recovery from chronic fatigue syndrome, I probably slept with about 20 different women. Uh, didn't always get to know them particularly well. I just thought, oh, you know, I've been victimized by this awful illness. I, I've lost out on so much sex and, you know, so many opportunities. L let me just, you know, try to catch up as quickly as I can. I've been robbed of life. You know, let me get out there. Have I ever been caught practicing the art of self-love? No, thank God, I have not. So I've had my problems, but, you know, Public masturbation uh, has not been one of them. Rape has not been one of them. Uh, exposing myself, uh, being attracted to, to children. Okay, these these have not been things that have ailed me. Uh, Sam Vaknin, yeah, the, the power of victimhood. So, yeah, if you keep telling people that the 2020 election was stolen, then you release people from any moral compunctions in how, how they react to that. So you then get a mob like you got on January 6th. I don't think it was an insurrection, but it's certainly people who'd lost a sense of what was legal, what was appropriate, what was moral, what was an efficient and effective way of you know, fighting for the political cause that they believed in. So no, my, my parents have never caught me, but once, I'll admit, okay, 1990... 1989, I, I, I rented, uh, I think Debbie Does Dallas 3, and it was just such an amazing movie. Just, just so many twists and turns in the plot that I was, uh, yeah, I was uh, enjoying the movie, so to speak, and, and my dad was like in the next room, like in the kitchen, and there was no like, there was no like barrier door between us. All right, so I was just having it off with Debbie Does Dallas 3, and my dad was like in the next room, you know, studying some work of Christian theology. So that was incredibly reckless. 
Uh, any thoughts on Run Jeremy's trial? Well, I'm just kind of abashed and ashamed. Like the whole time that I was covering the porn industry for for about ten years, I knew that you know Ron Jeremy was a groper, and that I knew that he forced himself on women. I think in something like 1994, I read Jerry Butler's autobiography where he describes you know Ron Jeremy raping Ginger Lynn. And so, you know, Ron Jeremy was groping and raping all around me. And I didn't even notice that. We just thought, you know, that's Ron. And so that that's the thing. You just get be, become habituated to things and you lose all moral sensitivity. Just like just setting foot on a, a porn set will change you, right? If you've simply set foot on a porn set and just, you know, watching people having sex within 30 minutes, it will no longer shock you. It, it will become normal to you Angus says no some people have no sense of morality in the first place yeah is that what made you a cowboys fan debbie does dallas no it was reading the inspiring christian stories of uh, tom landry and and roger storback back in the the 1970s yeah laponius i mean he had these horrible experiences with uncle wally I thought what he was doing was normal, but 40 set me straight. You are the victim here, Laponius, right? And you did nothing wrong, right? You did nothing wrong. All right? It's not your fault. Right? You did nothing wrong. It's not your fault. Right? I know know it was something terrible that, that happened to you. Right? But don't blame yourself, right? It's not your fault, so screw Uncle Wally. Look at me, Laponius. It's not your fault. Laponius, it's not your fault. And I know you're saying, oh, I know. No, no, you don't, Laponius. What Uncle Wally did to you, it's not your fault. I know, Laponius, it's not your fault. All right. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. Bro, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. Oh God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. It's not your fault, Laponius. It's not your fault. Man, I had I had COVID about two months ago and I just felt this profound sense of fatigue. And then after the fatigue left me, I just felt so nihilistic. And then there was this feeling of emptiness that followed. Luckily, I was able to interpret these feelings correctly. It was loss of essence. Now, I can assure you it's not recurred. Like, I'm not a man who's unfamiliar with women. I enjoy women. I talk to women. I respect women. And women sense my power. And they seek the life essence. I do not avoid women, but I do deny them my essence. And here's another man who denies women his essence, Richard Hananya. Favor of it, right? And if you read the Harvard briefs, you you can see this in action. Uh, we we need it for diversity. If we don't have it, we won't have this wonderful diversity. On the one hand, on the other hand, if you even dare to suggest that any given person is the beneficiary of affirmative action, that they got where they are in large part because of affirmative action, you've just insulted them, right? And that's grounds to fire you. I mean, that's one of the indictments against me that I said to some student, you know, 
10 years ago, oh, you're, you only got into the schools you got into because of affirmative action. Now, I never said that, actually. That's one of the allegations that's totally made up. Um, but even if I had said it, right, I mean, why is that an insult? And how am I supposed to know what it is when everybody around me tells me that affirmative action is the greatest thing since sliced bread? Well, the two are just kind of well, they can say that about themselves. I got into affirmative. So Sotomayor and Obama can say things like, I benefited from affirmative action. If you say it and you're opposed to affirmative action, right, then it's a problem. Right. It, that's it's- paradox celebration. It depends on whose mouth it comes out of, sort of like replacement theory, right? If Democrats say, isn't it wonderful, we're going to be a majority minority nation in, in 15 years, that's, that's progress. That's great. You know, whites will be in the minority. That's something to be uh, proud of and celebrated. But if a white person says... Okay, so let's have a look at uh, their use of themselves. So... Uh, Amy Wax, you know, fairly free in the, in the neck and the shoulders, but uh, I, I just see a lot of unnecessary tension with young uh, Richard Hanina. As you know, uh, we're being replaced. Uh, I'm not sure that's such a great thing. Well, they are racist and a white supremacist. So it's it's this idea that, you know, with the wrong... So his, uh, his shoulder looks uh, compacted. So I think he's got a lot of unnecessary tension in his shoulder. Now, Amy Wax has, has nice broad shoulders without a lot of unnecessary tension. A uh, lot of unnecessary tension in his face. You notice it doesn't move around as as easily as Amy Wax's does, even though she's 40 years older than him. If one person says it, then it's bad. Um, so, you know, we have these sorts of bizarre uh, paradoxes and contradictions. But of course, Richard, the whole point here, and this is a broader, a broader point, the whole point is to impose these kinds of irrational, hyper-emotional... Con- so notice the distortion here of how he's got a you know, shoulder rising up almost to his ear level. While Amy Wax, you know, her head's kind of releasing away from her torso. She's, you know, got nice length and freedom in her neck. Contradictory, illogical, you know, factually ill-founded, irrational ideas on the academy because rationality, evidence, uh, reason, logic, these are whiteness. This is stuff we want to get rid of, okay? And the students are taught from day one to be suspicious of all of these standards and these strictures. So, you know, the fact that we're contradicting ourselves, saying inconsistent things. So Richard Ananya is one of my favorite intellectual discoveries of the past two years. I mean, this guy consistently brings high-quality tweets, substack posts, videos, thoughtful, important thinker. Saying stuff that's against the evidence, not supplying evidence, this, this is not objectionable according to, you know, the reigning the reigning ideology. I remember that one of the funniest, uh, speaking of emotionality, one of the funniest accusations, there's a gay uh, professor who said that you said that somebody should not. So notice all, all this uh, tension and compression here, you know, beside his neck and shoulders, and not nearly this, as much with Amy Wax. Be forced to have a gay roommate if they don't want one, right? And he says this was, he was extremely distressed. First, did, did this happen? Can you, you know, talk about this? Because it's strange that some of these accusations are from fellow, fellow faculty. Well, I mean, first of all, you know, I don't know who this professor is. I'm not given any sense of when I said this. Oh, no, it, it, it's a, it says his name. It's right here. Uh, stating while on a panel with openly gay faculty colleague Tobias Wolf. That, Tobias uh, Wolf, right. Well, here, here was the thing. Before Obergefell, this was years and years ago, I was invited to a number of panels in which my brief was to give the best arguments against recognizing gay marriage, okay, uh, and a broad sense of gay rights. That's what I was asked to do, right? I mean, that may be ancient history, but it's true. And, you know, some of the things I said, which I had written about because I had written an article about the secular case against gay marriage, uh, would today, you know, fast forward, be regarded as offensive and hurtful and all this sort of thing. But at the time, people were actually engaging in a give and take on the pros and cons of a lot of these issues that are now kind of regarded as completely closed and slam dunk. You know, it is childish, it is immature, and it is primitive to judge an argument by whether you personally find it hurtful and offensive. I mean, is that 
the sole criterion by which we judge the merits of any given objection, position, policy? No, I mean, that's, that's absurd. <laughs> yeah. Why is that an indictment of what someone says? I would just question that. Well, Where is that, yeah. well according to this, it made him feel distressed. And well, she was striking. She would hold that forth. She said, while sitting with me, she would say that. that, that that's that, that's that's the core of his argument. They, they quote this guy. There's quotation marks. So did you actually, did you read the whole letter that they sent about you? Uh, well, yes. I don't remember every detail. <laughs> of it. So notice how his head's kind of compressing his neck. Like, look, there, there's no neck left. Like his head's just basically collapsed into his torso, while while Amy comparatively has, has a nice long free neck, but men tend much more to live in an abstract world, and so when you live in an abstract world, you you lose touch with reality and you get all these distorting, unnecessary muscular tension compression patterns. So he, he's basically lost his neck here. I find most of it absurd because here's what it boils down to, Richard. I was upset by what she said. That is the only criterion that needs to be considered. Yeah. Fire her. I mean, that is, in sum, what this letter is about. And, you know, as I've said to certain people, I'm upset all the time. By so there's just so much more tension going on here with his neck, his head-neck-back relationship compared to Amy Wax, even though she's the one who's passionately speaking. So when you're passionately talking about something or just passionately thinking about something or trying to work something out in your head, you will tense up. So she has all the incentive to be racked by unnecessary compression and tension patterns, but she's doing really well. While Richard, who's just listening, like all this tension going on in his head, neck, back relationship is just grabbing me through the by screen. What people say to me, by what I read in Pravda, AKA the New York Times, you know, by what gets said in presentations at the law school, but it never occurs to me to say, well, the person who said it needs to be fired. Why, why does my offense not count for anything? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. I, I, I never would contend that my offense he is the sole criterion by which we judge whether someone is employable in the academy. Of course, people are going to be offended by positions that they don't agree with. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, this makes me think. So I had an essay called Women's Tears Win in the Marketplace of Ideas. I don't know if you, if you saw yeah, it. I read it. Yeah. So how much, do you, how much do you think this is sort of, because I, I would go to these cases and I would look at these videos of these people coming after professors. And it was like, you know, you'd see the headline, students do X. It's like, it's not students. It's, it's 10 women. It's just, it's just women, right? You're blaming all students. To what extent is, you know, do you see uh, uh, sort of the, uh, the, the shift in the sort of the atmosphere of the universities um, resulting from? So why are his eyes so dark? Is this lack of sleep? From, uh, from female activism versus the, you know, the student body as a whole. Well, I mean, I'm on the record as saying that the feminization of the academy has been a total disaster. Okay, because what it has meant is that the values of the nursery and the kindergarten have now been elevated to the paramount considerations and the old traditional um, and traditionally masculine values of truth seeking, uh, of argumentation, of reason and evidence and objectivity um, have been downgraded. I mean, you know, it's one thing to say, well, we need to open these institutions to women. Is this, yeah, is this an intentional goth look here by, by Richard? And, uh, and I think fundamental fairness provides a very strong basis for doing that. Uh, you know, we should open these institutions to talent, whatever form it takes. And that applies also to different ethnicities and different races. But it's quite another to say, well, now we're going to let um, the, the interests of women or the values that women, uh, you know, elevate, uh, we're going to, to sort of let those become the paramount guiding values. We're going to displace all of the old practices and all of the old touch. Ah, oh, bro, you're wearing a t-shirt to interview Amy Wax? I mean, I'd be putting on a nice collared shirt if I was interviewing Amy Wax. I mean, I, I, I'm afraid I'd just melt if I were giving her an Alexander Technique l lesson to, to think that you know my, my hands would be gently you know guiding you know her head neck back relationship. Thinking you know I've got 200 IQ points in this you know marvelous head here. 
So I'll admit I'd be a little intimidated, but come on, Richard, you got to wear a nicer shirt than this to interview the great Amy Wax. Stones in favor of these. I mean, that wasn't part of the deal. That shouldn't be part of the deal. And, you know, you say, well, women's tears rule the day. Well, that just begs the question of why men let women's tears rule the day. Yes. There was a time, Good wasn't point. that long ago, all right, where men said to women, I'm sorry, but if you think that the values of the nursery and the kindergarten of, you know, making everybody feel good and included and warm and yummy, uh, that those are going to become the paramount values of the reigning values of the academy. Um, I'm sorry, but uh, no, we're, we are not going to give into that. We are going to resist that. We have good and sufficient reason for um, for pushing back because over hundreds and hundreds of years uh, of struggle and, and you know, uh, and analysis and effort, we have developed these post-enlightenment standards. And we have them for good and sufficient reason. They have yielded all the great achievements and accomplishments of civilization. We believe in them. Uh, we are uh, willing to defend them. And we're not going to let you defeat them. In other words, why are men not standing up to women? They used to. Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. I mean, and one I've thought a lot about. I mean, I see these, yeah, I see these men, you know, they're, they're just to live in fear. I mean, I feel guilty. If why I are they afraid of women? Why are they? It's, I ask the same question. Why are we afraid of black students? Well, why, you know, why are we not willing to take charge and you know, do our job and say to them, no, you cannot engage in emotional blackmail. Emotional blackmail is, you know, degrading and debasing and it's decadent. And you're trying to destroy what we built over hundreds of years. We're not going to let you. Yeah. I mean, did, did men, I mean, if you went up to a group of men, say, I don't know, a long time ago, decades ago, and you were a woman and you started, you know, crying. I think the natural instinct, even at the time, say the 1950s would have been, you know, to feel some kind of sympathy and say, okay, you know, whatever you want, you, you win the argument. I think it's a, it's a trope of sort of a, a popular culture that, you know, women. Right. So I agree with traditionalists. You don't treat men and women the same. I believe in opening doors for women. You shouldn't treat kids and adults the same. Uh, you don't, you know, treat aristocrats and plebs the same. Now, I recognize differences between peoples and how you should respond to them it should be different. Okay, important tweet here from Michael Tracy. Everyone should read this Representative Jamie Raskin statement. It's a manifesto declaring progressive holy war against Russia by way of Ukraine. I honestly think they'd be okay getting incinerated in a nuclear holocaust if it meant staying true to this ideological struggle. So Representative Jamie Raskin writes, thousands of Ukrainian women are fighting on the front and a woman serves as deputy minister of defense. Sexual minorities are represented within the Ukrainian armed forces. Yes, let's go to nuclear war on their behalf. Russia is a world center of anti-feminist, anti-gay, anti-trans hatred, as well as the homeland of replacement theory for export. In supporting Ukraine, we are opposing these fascist views. We are supporting the urgent principles of democratic pluralism. Could we get anything more important than that? All right, shocking news here from the New York Times. With ads, imagery, and words, Republicans inject race into campaigns. Running ads portraying black candidates as soft on crime or as different or dangerous, Republicans have shared quiet defenses of such tactics for unabashed defiance. You may not realize this, but if the Republicans weren't injecting race into the campaign, race wouldn't be in politics. The only reason that there is a racial dimension in politics is purely because of the Republicans who just keep sticking the race angle in there. Otherwise, we would live in a world of radical love and inclusion. Right. The only time race gets injected into the body politic is from Republicans. Democrats never use appeals to race. There are no 
wait, there are no like racial groups who organize politically, are there? I mean, are there black groups that organize politically aside? From, well, there is the, the Black uh, Congressional Caucus and there are all these different organizations representing black interests. Wait, so it's not that Republicans are injecting race into campaigns. It's that Republicans are re- injecting race into campaigns in a way that this New York Times columnist doesn't approve of. There's no way in a multiracial country that you're not going to have race in campaigns, right? When you have a multiracial country, then then race, like race, essentially dictates how politics operate. Right? That's Lee Kuan Yew of Singapore. This idea that it's you know just Republicans who are who are injecting injecting race. Right. The Democrats don't inject race or that it's inappropriate somehow to think in racial terms. So it's great for, for blacks to think in racial terms and Jews have a right to their self-interest and gays have a right to their political self-interest. Latinos, Mexican-Americans, Asian-Americans, Japanese-Americans, Chinese-Americans, every group has a right to pursue their political racial self-interest, but uh, not not white people. God forbid. God forbid. Well, Jennifer Rubin has spoken, ladies and gentlemen. There is no compromise with election deniers. There is no compromise with election deniers. This opinion piece was written by Jennifer Rubin. There is no compromise with election deniers. And that's the problem. Right-wing pundits and Republican apologists are quick to blame elites or the left for a failure to respect and recognize the legitimacy of a mega movement based in election denial white Christian nationalism and hostility toward robust democratic elections. It's a demand for acceptance that is eerily reminiscent of other periods in U.S. history, example, the 1850s, the 1920s, the 1950s. Wait, we're living in an age of the politics of recognition, right? Is it enough for gays simply to have their basic civil rights and and to be able to get married? No, they want to be recognized as you know, being every bit the equal of heterosexuals and heterosexual unions. Uh, trans, uh, a trans satisfied with just some basic rights? No, right? They demand the politics of recognition. You know, blacks, Latinos, Asians, every, you know, variety under the sun, they demand a politics of recognition. But when Donald Trump supporters demand the same thing when conservatives demand the same thing. That is heinous. Which can illuminate the depth of our national problem. At the outbreak of the Civil War, for example, it was as if the South could hear nothing more, could absorb nothing more, once it was told that the rest of the nation had found its way of life morally wanting. It felt judged, and it hated it, writes John Meacham in. Well, isn't this exactly what gays feel and uh, trans people feel? And all sorts of other oppressed minorities who are demanding a politics of recognition. Why should not conservatives demand the same thing? And Jennifer Rubin says we we can never compromise with, with MAGA, right? Because MAGA insists that they their followers can be seen only if the rest of us agree with their delusions and conspiracies. How is that different from any other activist group, right? Can you say the same thing about feminists, gays, gay marriage proponents, the trans community? Right? We live in this age of the politics of recognition, and no individual, let alone any group, is free from delusions.
I'm filled with delusions. So she, the headline is, there is no compromise with election deniers. And election deniers is not a real category. It's just a slur. Right? Couldn't you just as easily say, there should be no compromise with Christ deniers or Torah deniers or heterosexual marriage or homosexual marriage deniers? I mean, have I shared with you the type of sex that I like? This is how I identify, right? I bring the pain. I'm MAGA in the bedroom, Sivnat in the boardroom. I'm MAGA in the sheets. I'm Sivnat on the streets. Now I'm Compton in the bedroom. I'm Beverly Hills in the boardroom. Do I need to go on? I need you to recognize and respect my identity. Right? Have you heard about the, the Brentwood hello? Right? According to Urban Dictionary, Brentwood hello is when a woman wakes up a man by fellatio. Well, you know, we, we must recognize, we must practice the, the politics of recognition of those who practice the Brentwood hello. It's a way of saying good morning and showing that you really mean it. So it's a reference in the great book, Nicole Brown Simpson, The Private, A Diary of a Life Interrupted. Talking about the O.J. Simpson of Circle of Brentwood Divas and things that they like to do. So the divas refer to their oral sex fellatio escapades as in, I gave him a warm Brentwood hello. And you can also say it's a more palatable phrase for blowjob. You think blowjob's a crude term. So when I saw my all-time favorite play friend, Jim, I wanted to, him to know, how happy I was to see him. So I tore off his pants and I gave him a Brentwood hello. I, we, we must practice the politics of recognition, guys. And uh, we can't discriminate against this kind of promiscuity. And there was light, Abraham Lincoln and the American struggle. Substitute election denier for the South. Denier. And you have a fair approximation of the current state of American politics. Now, one side believes its viewpoint is essential to maintaining its power and its conception of America. It insists it's... Wait, only one side is interested in maintaining its power and its conception of America? Every living organism tries to create a world around it that is most conducive to its flourishing, whether it's uh, MAGA Republicans or Antifa Democrats, or pond scum or lions and leopards. Followers can be seen only if the rest of us agree with their delusions and conspiracies. Sorry, but in a democracy, there is no compromise with that mentality. Buying into the big lie and white nationalism means rejecting the premise of constitutional government based on the creed all men are created equal. Right, so therefore you could just dismiss the humanity, you can't compromise, you just have to regard you know, all MAGA people as you know, essentially the, the scum of the earth. Can't compromise with these guys, they're, they're just bad news. The ins and outs of America's shrug at the threat of democracy. So we have a New York Times poll that says for Americans, democracy is not their number one issue, right? They're watching their savings evaporate. They're struggling to pay bills, right? So according to Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs, physiological needs of food and shelter take priority over abstractions. So voters are thinking rationally. When it comes to protecting democracy, each side sees the other as the problem. So there's not really much to go on there other than to vote for your own party. So serious experts on democracy say that election deniers are the real danger. 
right? We've got an increasing legitimacy problem. Now, why did Europe veer towards fascism and communism after World War I? Because their political system was not regarded as legitimate by a large part of the population. Now they claim, well, Donald Trump and his supporters, they are denying the legitimacy of our system. So if a political system is not characterized by a value system that allows the party out of power to accept the party in power, there can be no stable democracy. Somehow, I, I think uh, we'll be able to survive all this. All right, big New York Times article. There, America is vanishing. Like Trump, they insist they were cheated. So for Trump's backers in Congress, devil terms really do help rally the base. In Fort Bend County, Texas, things are changing. Mosque and Hindu temples draw thousands. Farmland is giving way to suburbs. Some Republicans feel the country is becoming more like Houston. Well, you have all these articles about blacks who fear gentrification because it means the loss of their neighborhoods. So every other group gets to try to hold on to their particular neighborhood, their way of life. Every other neighborhood gets to you know, assert some you know, group racial interests. But apparently, you know, not white Christian Americans. They don't have any valid interests. They have to just welcome being displaced. So what's predominantly white, Fort Bend has become one of the most diverse places in the country. So why would you expect white people in Fort Bend to celebrate this? Fort Bend's congressman is an outspoken denier of Donald J. Trump's defeat. Yeah, it's a way of saying that you're angry, right? Nobody wants to see their people vanish. Their America is vanishing. Like Trump, they insist they were, they were cheated. Well, this article doesn't come to terms with what's really going on with demographics, and that is that white people are not being displaced at nearly dramatic rate that is the conventional wisdom. It's just that more and more people are incentivized to identify by you know, their one-quarter, one-eighth, one-sixteenth non-white component. So Fort Bend County residents, white residents, particularly unhappy with the changes unfolding around them. Crime, sprawl from Houston, pollution, loss of social trust, social cohesion. And uh, they don't like outsiders coming there, right, who commit a lot of crime and who destroy the social fabric and reduce trust between people. So a shrinking white share of the population is a hallmark of congressional districts held by House Republicans who voted to challenge Trump's defeat. Yes, it's a way of saying that you're not happy with the direction of the country. Right? People don't usually say what they mean, particularly when they're speaking publicly. Right? If people said what they mean, a lot of the time they'd be saying things like, F my spouse, no, I hate my kids, I hate my family, I hate the gays, I hate trans, I hate blacks, Jews, Christians, you know, Hindus, Muslims, all right? That's what people would sound like if they were saying what's on their mind. But because people don't get to speak that way, they instead say euphemisms like they are for you know, vote integrity. A portion of white residents in Fort Bend has dropped to 35%. And the area is lagging behind in income and education. You've got deaths of despair, such as suicide, drug overdose, and alcohol-related liver failure uh, skyrocketing. Yeah, 
uh, many people don't do well in captivity, right? They don't do well you know, being captive to a system, to a political system, a social, cultural, media system that they feel is overwhelmingly allied, aligned against them. That's why you have to read Ronnie Goodman's excellent book on conservative claims of, of cultural oppression, right? People who aren't liberal see that all the major institutions in this country are controlled by liberals and the left. And so they feel oppressed, and oppressed people don't always articulate their grievances you know, in you know, PBS-type terms, right? They, they, don't, uh, they don't always sound like NPR when they're mad. So, Lies, Politics, and Democracy from PBS. The Republican Party enabled Donald Trump as he convinced his base that the election had been stolen. McConnell chooses silence. Penn says to the president, I can't do it. Liz had given a really compelling narrative about why we have to certify the election. A good deal of American democracy relies on simple good faith. If anything was revealed to us, it was just how fragile a system we have. Now, a Frontline special presentation, Lies, Politics, and Democracy. Well, thank God for PBS, right? Going to shine, shine a light on lies, politics, and democracy. So one thing you'll notice when you get all these media reports on democracies, they never bother to actually define what democracy is. So if democracy is under threat, you'd think it'd be important to actually define what you're talking about, but they never want to define what they talk about because it's always a particular conception of democracy. Really, what's under threat is democratism. And I just read a great book on this by Emily Finley. New book just came out, The Ideology of Democratism. Right? This is that democracy is some kind of ideal, right? And uh, only bears a, a tenuous connection to actual historical desires of real popular majorities. So democratism is the belief that democracy is real or genuine only to the degree it reflects an idealized conception of the popular will. So you'll get the president of Freedom House is oriented by this particular conception of democracy, declaring that popular majorities are a threat to democracy, right? A popular majority is a threat to democracy. So why is it that the vast majority of scholarship about democracy is oriented to some kind of shared normative assumption about democracy, that the, the real democracies are legitimate only if they conform to a particular ideal of democracy? And why is this particular ideal held to be the one true form of democracy and that all countries of the globe must strive towards it? And why do we have this assumption that in undemocratic countries, most of the people, if only they were able to think rationally and clearly about their interests, would choose something like Western-style democracy? All right, so on the left, right, you have this conception of individuals as buffered, meaning that what's going on with you and outside my door, that doesn't have to affect me. So if you are worshiping the devil next door, that's not my problem. If you're you know, engaged in sodomy next door, that's not my problem. If you are lying and cheating in business, that's not my problem. I am a buffered self. The traditional conception of the self is that the world's an incredibly dangerous place, 
and that you need protection. And most people have oriented towards God for protection. But if you don't look towards God for protection, then you, you look to his antithesis, Satan, right? So people would sometimes align with Satan for protection. But traditionally, people felt that in a dangerous world, you had to ally with some kind of you know, transcendent power for protection, either you know, God or Satan. Because we are not buffered. We are porous. What's going on with you affects me. What's going on you know, down the street affects me. I'm not just buffered. The, the left-wing liberal conception of the self is that we are rational, that we can just rationally choose what is right and wrong, and that we can rationally choose how we want to live our lives and, and move and have our being. The, the traditional conception of the self is that uh, you know the human being has all sorts of contradictory impulses, so that that which I would do, I do not do, and that which I'd rather not do, I do do, right? So the liberal conception of the self is that you're buffered, that you're rational, that you're a strategic autonomous thinker who's reflexive, meaning that you're able to understand the effect of everything you're saying and doing on other people, that you're able to you know stand objectively outside of yourself and see yourself you know, in a, in a fair way. That's the modern conception of the self as opposed to the traditionalist conception of the self, which is that the world outside us is an incredibly dangerous place that threatens us and therefore we need protection, usually from, from God or sometimes people will choose a, a Satan. So why is it that the news media in the Western world and its leading scholars on democracy are so in love with this imaginative vision of democracy, which is essentially indistinguishable from religious belief. And why do these intellectuals get to define what is democracy and who are the heretics who must be censored? So you keep hearing in the news that this or that policy or action needs to save democracy. Democracy must be rescued, essentially, from popular majorities. So populist Right, populism, the idea of a will of the people, that there is a public. Right, this is a threat to democracy. You know, populists, populists are derided as authoritarians or fascists. Right, you know, populists who believe in in a public, a cohesive united public who's willing to line up against the elites. This somehow is fascism. So, to make that work, you need a democratist ideology. Right, where you equate that which is popular and populist with its seeming opposite authoritarianism. So democratism has this belief that people are generally good, generally rational, and that people must be awakened somehow through enlightenment to their true rational and good self, and then they will elect leaders representing the policies that correspond with these interests. People's best interests ally with those values of democratism. And politics is just a matter of correct reasoning and judgment It's not so much a moral ethical challenge. So democratism essentially springs from thinkers like Thomas Jefferson and Rousseau, that uh, man's destructive passions have outside causes. While from a traditionalist perspective, we have a more skeptical view of human nature. We believe that our destructive passions arise from within. So from the democratist left-wing perspective, once these external sources of evil, such as bad institutions and traditions and ignorance, are eliminated, then peace and love will be restored. So democratism assumes people are inherently good, inherently rational, and so it accounts for perpetual deviations from this state of freedom and equality by blaming sinister forces such as public officials, institutions, and 
religions and you know, ignorant folk ways. So Democritus, like Rousseau, Woodrow Wilson, Jacques Maritain, George W. Bush, used this Christian language of good and evil, light and darkness, in the providence of God to describe what they interpret as a world historic battle for democracy. So Rousseau believed in the existence of a general will. Thomas Jefferson had his faith in the people. John Rawls has a belief that through a veil of ignorance, people will invariably arrive at liberal democracy as the right and true way to live. They all evince an underlying faith in democracy as historically inevitable, just given the right conditions, because people are basically good and rational. And a democratism proposes to create these right conditions. So you get language about waves of democracy and democratic backsliding. So for many, democracy is the norm, and other political and social forms are outmoded. They're awaiting evolution to a higher place. So this is the philosophy of history upon which modern democratic theory rests. Okay, let's probably wondering what what the heck uh, does uh, Hillary Clinton have to say? Last night. This program contains graphic content. Oh, boy. Your discretion is advised. Last night, I congratulated Donald Trump and offered to work with him on behalf of our country. I have just called President Obama to congratulate him on his victory. I had the honor of calling Senator Barack Obama to congratulate him. Please. I spoke to President Bush and I offered him and Laura our congratulations on their victory. Now the U.S. Supreme Court has spoken. While I strongly disagree with the court's decision, I accept it. The president is my opponent, not my enemy. And I wish him well, and I pledge my support. And America must always come first, so we will get behind this new president and wish him, wish him well. So this is a lot like the topic of Sunday's stream. What's more important, the process, the process of democracy, or the outcome? Right, many liberals today seem to be primarily process-oriented. A, a traditionalist, I think, has more of the perspective from the preamble to the U.S. Constitution that we are, are developing this government for our own protection and welfare, not just for us, but for our progeny. So that there are ends that we are using democracy for. It's not just a matter of processes. So what about with regard to foreign policy? Right? Democratism tends towards expansion and imperialism. So there's this idea in democratism that politics can be ordered according to reason and that we are approaching the dawn of a new global democratic age. And so we have to liberate lands. So people who think like this are usually reluctant to admit openly that they do not wish to translate the popular will into legislation. Right? They don't want to admit that they don't actually want the people to rule. They just want to find ways for their own beliefs to become institutional. So democratism is not a single set of rules. Sometimes it manifests as a foreign policy of idealism abroad. So you get deliberative democracy, right? That's the ideal where people come together on the basis of equal status and mutual respect to discuss and decide political issues, just like this live stream, right? It's a uh, much-needed democratic corrective to democratism's typical reliance on an enlightened leadership class to represent the people. 
but deliberative democracy tends to incline towards the same paradoxical embrace of the people's will as democratism. And uh, absolutely no evidence that practices of deliberative democracy make people better, uh, make government better. Right? It's supposed to help citizens understand better the issues, their own interests, and the interests and perceptions of others. Where agreement is not possible, deliberative democracy helps structure and clarify the questions behind conflict. So we need to have a national conversation, right? This is deliberative democracy. You hear the news media talking about the need for national conversations. 2016, the anchor of World News Tonight on ABC, David Muir, moderated a town hall with President Barack Obama called the President and the People, a national conversation. You got the Woodrow Wilson Center and National Public Radio co-producing the National Conversation, a forum for deep dialogue and informed discussion of the most significant problems facing the nation and the world. So you get all these lofty appeals to the need for a national conversation, right? They're so frequent and so abstract that they, they mean almost nothing. But they testify to this core idea of deliberation that is at the heart of deliberative democracy. If the nation would just deliberate, that would clarify issues. It would render political decisions more legitimate. Right? This is the way, folks. So this idea that rational inquiry and dialogue can act as disinterested forces in the search for truth and justice is quintessential of enlightenment thinking. The enlightenment holds that people are basically good and basically rational. And this informs the progressive philosophy of history that citizens simply become more educated in science and in rational principles. They will naturally discern what is right and moral and they'll go out and get their COVID boosters. By the way, I've had three COVID boosters, five COVID shots overall. So morality is not a result of habit or struggle with the self, as Christian traditions held. It's a function of right rational reasoning and right education. So deliberative democracy flows from this Enlightenment tradition. So the, the major obstacle to thriving is not moral or spiritual, it's rational and educational. So from the left-wing perspective, the, the greatest threats are ignorance and bigotry. From a right-wing perspective, the greatest threats are disorder and contagion. So deliberative democracy's first principle is the belief that reason is autonomous and we're all basically good. And through these two things, we can arrive at shared conceptions of the good, regardless of our personal beliefs. Well, good luck with that. This nation faces major challenges ahead and we must work together. He is one. We are all Americans. He is our president. In bringing about an orderly transition of government, in the weeks ahead. I congratulate you on your victory. Congratulations on your victory. We've got a president-elect. He's going to have my help. Cheers. I have no bitterness, no rancor at all. He will have my wholehearted support and your support. The people have rendered their verdict, and I gladly accept it. I urge all Americans to unite behind you and every good American will wholeheartedly accept the will of the people. I accept the result of the election with complete goodwill. This is an embarrassment to our country. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. Oh, man, he's not following the protocols, guys. He's not following the, the process.
So what what gets to determine the, the proper path? Historical circumstance, personal experience, identity, worldview? No. If we just allow people to reason their way towards goodness. Just need procedures and methods of proper deliberation to guide citizens toward the type of thinking that deliberative democracy says is objectively reasonable. Now, if this type of thinking must be cultivated, it suggests that it's not as natural as deliberative democracy would have us believe. So these kind of discussions place quite a burden on citizens. They must practice conversational restraint, listening to and engaging with other speakers on equal terms. Citizen is not permitted to respond by appealing to his understanding of the moral truth. He must be prepared instead to engage in a restrained dialogue to locate the premises that both sides find reasonable. Using your own experience or philosophical views as justifications for an argument are not acceptable. Citizens must espouse their moral positions independently of the circumstances in which they speak. They must hold a position because it is a moral position, not for reasons of political advantage. Right, So these ideals of deliberative democracy are simply not compatible with human nature. So democratism holds this view of deliberative democracy that reason is some kind of impartial force capable of independently discerning truth. And it contends that a majority of people, when brought together, can give form to this. So deliberative democracy relies on procedures that amount to coercion. It demands that citizens suppress the expression of thoughts and ideas which arise from particular considerations, right? Hardly encourages the frank and flow, free flow of ideas that it purports to seek. Is it fair to say that citizens whose moral positions derive from their particular circumstances are acting with a view to political advantage? Personal moral convictions may be as conducive to the common good as not. So Rawls has this modern enlightenment understanding of persons as free, equal, rational, quite different from pre-enlightenment understandings of freedom, equality, and rationality, which held that people are not autonomous, not buffered, not strategic or rational, and that hierarchy and leadership are natural. So the procedures of deliberative democracy essentially lead themselves to governance by bureaucracy, where more and more society is administered and overseen by experts. So deliberative democracy is democratic in the sense that other democratist theories are. It hides behind an apparent rationalism and objectivity and an orientation towards a comprehensive and highly partisan vision. It fundamentally reimagines human nature and with it human political possibilities. It wants to withdraw us from reality and from our own life experience. So from the perspective of democratists and deliberative democracy, proponents, politics is a matter of reprogramming the citizens according to rational rules. We are required first to believe. Now, what are the results of deliberative democracy? Mixed or inconclusive. So this perspective essentially favors the ideal over the historical and the empirical. It relies on unrealized visions and ideals. So in a 2020 Senate Judiciary Committee hearing, Chief Executive Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook and Jack Dorsey of Twitter defended their company's rights to moderate conversations on their social media platforms, citing the preservation of democracy 
as a reason. We are required to help increase the health of the public conversation while at the same time ensuring that as many people as possible can participate, Jack Dorsey said. Zuckerberg stressed the importance of the role internet platforms play in supporting democracy. It was the lie that sparked an insurrection. An existential threat to American democracy. Created by decisions made over years. Partisan warfare. Moral compromise. Warnings ignored. I alone can fix it. So, to uh, preserve our democracy, we need to censor people. We need to exclude people. We need to be, you know, on guard, watching out for... The, the will of the majority and, and populist movements. Right. So over the past 20 years, we have this, all this talk about, we need to, you know, have armed interventions in the name of democracy, in the name of humanitarian ideals. We have threats to freedom around the world, right? The survival of Liberty in our land guys, it increasingly depends on the success of Liberty in Afghanistan and Iraq. The U.S. foreign policy has stopped being restrained by real threats to our own national security or national interests. Right now, considerations of territorial integrity, national sovereignty, maintaining a balance of power, these concrete practical goals, right, they have to be second or third to grandiose aspirations such as ending tyranny in our world. Ready to end tyranny in our world? Democracy is for losers. God forbid. Now this is the place we've got to go. 30 seconds. Let's get quiet in studio. The warnings about the threat to democracy were there from the very beginning. Some breaking news for you now. Fox News can now project that Texas Senator Ted Cruz has won Iowa. Ted Cruz wins the Republican contest here in Iowa. Tonight is a victory for courageous... So, Donald Trump you know, tried to buck the trend of foreign intervention. He succeeded in bringing some troops home. But even Trump, who campaigned for more restrained foreign policy, faced an uphill battle extricating America from its various entanglements around the globe. We've got a foreign policy establishment that feels important. The more it intervenes, the more active it is. Right? If you are in the foreign policy world, then you get your feeling of importance and strength you know, by taking action and uh, you know, defending the cause of freedom everywhere in the world. Joe Biden's pullout from Afghanistan may signal a turn in U.S. foreign policy. 
maybe turn away from armed intervention in the name of democracy, but his vow to defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese attack illustrates the U.S. has not abandoned its commitment to protect the democracy around the globe. So Afghanistan may soon be replaced by other interventions, such as for Ukraine. We will be told are crucial to making the world safe for democracy. We need to save, you know, a particular nation from authoritarianism or tyranny. So Leo Strauss is an intellectual behind neoconservatism, and he represents a fundamental ahistorical understanding of how the world works. Ahistorical meaning you don't need to understand the context, time, place, situation. So Leo Strauss contended the proper ordering of politics depends on knowledge of the ahistorical truths of what is right and wrong, right? Which is just a leap of faith. Only Leo Strauss was an atheist. So Leo Strauss presupposes some kind of legislator who establishes a politics, as opposed to historical understanding of the organic development of politics. So existing customs and institutions that do not reflect these universal truths as perceived by Leo Strauss and his disciples, these existing customs are just inherently unjust and illegitimate. So modernity is in crisis, Leo Strauss argued, because it turned away from the insights of classical thinkers like Plato as interpreted by Leo Strauss. So according to Leo Strauss, modernity's descent into moral relativism and nihilism can be traced to the philosophy of historicism, right? The belief that our existence is historical. So his philosophy is not compatible with democracy. His readings of the classics, his belief that the Classical natural right doctrine is identical with the doctrines of the best regime, assumes an inherent conflict between right and popular will. So neoconservatives hold that the United States originated as a compact based on universal principles of freedom and equality. So regular Americans understand the United States as a country that exists to protect us and to provide for our welfare and the welfare of our progeny. But for people on the neoconservative or the, you know, the left often America is some kind of idea or experiment. America is unique. It has a special role to play in the world. Most nationalisms are rooted in blood and soil and the culture and history of a particular territory. In the case of the United States, it's different, neocons will argue. We, we've got this you know, brand new idea. America represents a new man. We have escaped the confines of historical territorial limitation. So Charles Krauthammer tells us, America is uniquely built not on blood, race, or consanguinity, but on a proposition. No, America is built as an English outpost, right? America is built on Anglo-Saxons. Most important people in the history of the United States have overwhelmingly been Anglo-Saxon. Our institutions are dominantly Anglo-Saxon conservatives across Iowa and all across this great nation. Senator Ted Cruz had defeated Donald Trump in the first contest for the 2016 presidential nomination. Ted Cruz took on Donald Trump toe-to-toe and prevailed. Clearly, a majority of Iowans didn't want to make a deal with Donald Trump. It's going to be very interesting to see how Donald Trump will react to the fact that he's now been beaten. The big question now, how is Donald Trump going to handle a loss? Trump's response, a sign of what was to come. Ted Cruz didn't win Iowa, he stole it. 
Um, you have tweeted that Senator Ted Cruz stole the Iowa election. Everything about it was disgraceful. It was a fraud as far as I was concerned. The state of Iowa should disqualify Ted Cruz from the most recent election on the basis that he cheated a total. Okay, so back to this terrific book on democratism. So neoconservatives retell American history as some kind of idea, experiment, social contract. America is a testament. The idea that a political order can just be rationally decided upon and codified. Right, so neoconservatism doesn't consider historical and cultural conditions of a society because it assumes that inherited practices are arbitrary and irrelevant. So considering people's ancestral practices, nah, you don't need to do that from a neoconservative perspective. We just need to ground political order in universal principles, which are essentially identical with the American regime. So in 2017, at the end of the 16th year of war in Afghanistan, former General Stanley McChrystal argued for staying the course and even expanding the war into Pakistan. And he looked for guidance to Vladimir Lenin. So in 1902, Lenin published a famous pamphlet titled What is to be Done? He prescribed a strategy for what became the Bolshevik's successful takeover of Russia's 1917 revolution. Leonard argued that Russia's working classes required the leadership of dedicated cadres while they'd become sufficiently politicized to demand change in Tsarist Russia. So Stanley McChrystal, his co-author, lauded Vladimir Lenin's clear-eyed assessment of reality. And they concluded the same is needed for Afghanistan now. Need to remove the old elite by military force. Need to consolidate military gains with cultural and institutional programs. Right, military can provide a jumpstart for democracy in countries under the rule of dictators. You need to clear away the old and backward norms to open the way for people's natural desires for liberty and liberal democracy to come to fruition. So the force of American ideals and the influence of the international economic system will inevitably erode the inherited ways of undemocratic nations. Right, America can accelerate the historical process of modernization and democratization, which are essential. Essentially the same, guys. Modernization, democratization, Americanization, all the same thing. And this should sweep the globe from Baghdad and Belgrade to Pyongyang and Beijing. So tyrannical governments, if they have the military power to threaten their neighbors, well then the United States and its allies should crush them. So back in 1999, while praising Senator John McCain, New York Times columnist David Brooks lamented that uh, America no longer aggressively pushes hard-edged creeds. Americans would rather enjoy their lives and their organic lawn care products. So it's bad that Americans prefer the business of ordinary living to the frenetic desire to remake the world that drives Washington elites such as David Brooks. So David Brooks reveals this yawning chasm, and it's still just as true today in his writings, this yawning chasm between the elites who are all in with aiding Ukraine at the risk of World War III and regular Americans who are not interested in risking World War III for a conflict that doesn't have anything to do with America's most pressing national interests. So David Brooks says, if you drive around the country, you see a nation that is good, but tranquil to a fault. Right? So he finds Americans just way too tranquil. So for David Brooks, the lives of ordinary Americans is morally uninspiring. Now, David Brooks, who divorces his wives and has affairs with his researchers, he's the morally inspiring guy. So he faults Americans for not attending to a spirit of patriotism and higher calling. Instead, Americans are preoccupied with their own daily concerns. 
They, they turn towards the easy comforts of private life. They lose connection with higher, more demanding principles and virtues like invading other countries. So David Brooks here is not talking about the worship of God. right? He's talking about a civil religion of invading other countries. He wants American people to find new life and spirit in you know, invading and remaking Afghanistan and Iraq. Right? And it's not enough to simply worship the nation state, but you need to be inspired for an interventionist foreign policy, which is befitting of American greatness. David Brooks writes, America's moral destiny is wrapped up in its status as a superpower. If America ceases to assert itself as the democratic superpower, promoting self-government around the world, it will cease to be the America we love. So we need to remake other nations and make them democratic at the point of the sword. So these more demanding principles and virtues of interventionism in other countries, much more impressive to David Brooks than the small-scale morality of day-to-day life. So being concerned with your family and what's going on locally and domestically, right? basically unimportant compared to David Brooks and other neocons' grand national missions. Total fraud. Knowing what we know now, I think you would go back to February 1st of 2016 as the beginning. It's a total voter fraud, you think of it. And actually, I came in probably first, if you think about it. That episode was a bright red blinking light foreshadowing everything that was to come and just what a danger to democracy that this man posed. So notice they never even bother to define democracy. You know, what is the democracy that they say, you know, Donald Trump and his movement threatens? But if they defined what they say the MAGA movement threatens, right, then they'd reveal how partisan they are, that they're not just objective, empirical, rational. This is a pattern for Trump. He has done this every step of the way through his career, long before politics. As opposed to Peter Baker and PBS Frontline and our ruling elites, they don't have any patterns, right? They, they are just objective, rational, buffered, strategic, autonomous, empirical thinkers, when really they're just as partisan as uh, Donald Trump and his supporters. When The Apprentice lost an Emmy to The Amazing Race, he claimed that the Emmy contest was rigged. Amazing Race winning an Emmy again is a total joke. The Emmys have no credibility. The Emmys. So Peter Baker and company in the mainstream media came that there's, you know, all this awful racism out there that is uh, deforming the country, that uh, even though you can't point to it empirically, there's systematic racism, right? It's akin to a belief in witchcraft, right? It has no empirical evidence that that stands up. The idea that the police are systemically racist, right? There's no credible empirical evidence that makes that stand up. Yet, our ruling elites like uh, Peter Baker's newspaper, the New York Times, are constantly pushing this nonsense in the guise of being objective and rational. They're all politics. That's why The Apprentice never won. The public is smart. They know it's a con game. I have just called President Obama to congratulate him on his victory. He claimed that the election was rigged in 2012 when Mitt Romney, whom he had endorsed, lost to Barack Obama. This election is a total sham and a travesty. Yeah, as opposed to just the thoroughly rational and empirical people who produce 
programs like this. Uh, people who believe that virtue consists in abstract and romantic longings for a national and international greatness, togetherness, feelings of equality and camaraderie, a, a general will, a, a public interest. Right? This type of foreign policy has not made America any better off. It has not made the world any better off. America is decidedly worse off than in the 1990s. So it's characteristic of democratism to lament that the nation is not united behind a great international or domestic cause. Right? This is essentially a, a secular version of the Christian eschaton. Just as Christ's coming is expected to usher in a new age, the global democratic revolution is expected to utterly transform life and politics. We are not a democracy. More reports of voting machines switching Romney votes to Obama. Let's fight like hell and stop this great and disgusting injustice. We can't let this happen. We should march on Washington. Every step along the way, anything he has ever lost is because somebody else has cheated and stolen it from him. For those watching closely, it was a signal of trouble ahead. This certainly was a moment that set off alarm bells. So the Stop the Steal movement is irrational. Black Lives Matter is irrational. Antifa is irrational. Communism is irrational. So just because a movement is irrational and not open to empirical falsification or challenge, right, doesn't mean that it's hopeless or, or, or wrong, right? We, we do a lot of things from, you know, irrational, biased motives. That's the, that's the nature of the human condition. People usually don't have strong, rational reasons to self-sacrifice, for example. To be a small-D Democrat means to know how to lose elections. And a democracy can't survive if politicians and political parties don't know how to lose. I mean, sometimes people even said democracy is... To be a small-D Democrat is to know how to lose. Really? Is that... Is that... In what definition of democracy... Does, do you find that, right, that you have to know how to lose? All right. Whether or not Donald Trump knew how to lose, he was still removed from office. It wasn't even close. It's not like, oh, if the January 6th rioters had just been able to hold out for a few more hours that uh, Donald Trump would have been kept in for four more years. Right? They, come, they never define democracy. Then they quote people saying what democracy is, that... Ends up having nothing to do with what democracy is. It's for losers, it's a system that allows losers uh, to come back and fight another day. And so, if the losers deny that they've lost, uh, the system can't endure. Why? Why, if they deny that they lost, can the system not endure? People are entitled to their opinions. In Washington, some in the Republican Party were sounding the alarm about the threat Trump posed. Bill Kristol was one of what were called the never-Trumpers. I was publicly saying that Trump was unacceptable, people shouldn't support him, they should make clear they couldn't support him in the general election even, uh, they should band together against him. Kristol had been born into conservative royalty. His father, Irving, the godfather of the neoconservative movement. He was chief of staff for Vice President Quay. So aggression is often rude, right? Uh, Democrats have become the party of the most educated. Republicans have become the party, generally speaking, the less educated, less educated and not as articulate, but inarticulate, inchoate, 
incoherent you know, drives and desires and passions are not necessarily any more likely to be right or wrong than the most smooth-talking, articulate, you know, coherent presentations of ideology. Right? What's right and wrong does not depend upon articulous, articulateness or coherence. Failed in the George H.W. Bush White House. Founded the conservative magazine The Weekly Standard. Crystal saw danger in Trump's appeal. He had a weak... They see it's dangerous that Trump is appealing to non-rational things. But our most passionate emotions are frequently non-rational. Religion depends upon a lot of non-rational urgings. Nationalism is non-rational. Real feel for people's anxieties and uh, unhappiness about various things. He was willing to stoke those anxieties and... and, uh, uh, hatreds in some cases, resentments in ways that other politicians weren't willing to. Take three, start a recording. I don't know anything about David Duke, okay? I don't know anything about white supremacy or white supremacists. So. At the time, we used words like unconventional and non-traditional. Oh, I don't know what I said. Oh, I don't remember. But in hindsight, yeah, looking back, there were red flags left and right about what kind of leader Donald Trump was going to be. This was not someone who supported democratic ideals. This was, in in very real terms, an anti-democratic candidate, someone who had very clear... Well, then why don't you define what democratic ideals are, right? Democracy does not depend upon philosophical ideals, right? If it's it's so clear that uh, Donald Trump and his movement are a threat to democracy, then why don't you define... What, what the movement is. What, what is democracy? And, and what makes Trump and his supporters a threat to it? So in Stanley Kubrick's 1987 film, Full Metal Jacket, you get this colonel. And he tells a discontented subordinate that America is here to help the Vietnamese because inside every gook, there's an American trying to get out. Right? That's a pretty good summary of our foreign policy over the past 30 years. Right, we're, we're arming Ukraine because inside this conflict, there there are Americans trying to get out. The Donald Trump campaigned on restraining American foreign policy, but he still cannot help but refer to America's righteous mission. You know that, that America is just this exceptional nation, the righteous mission. So why has this liberal hegemony remained the default strategy among American foreign policy elites? despite being sharply at odds with the preferences of most Americans, right? Our foreign policy has been sharply at odds with the preferences of most Americans. That seems to me a much more of a threat to our democracy than uh, the MAGA crowd. So we've had liberal hegemony being the grand strategy in the West since Rousseau. Uh, Stephen Wall concludes that elites have entrenched interests in open-ended efforts to remake the world. Right? It makes elites feel important. It serves the interests of the powerful. They can draw on the ideology's deep rhetorical reserves of language about freedom and equality to pursue goals that lead to oppression, greater discrepancies in wealth, sharper political divisions, and devastating wars. So you had President of Freedom House Michael Abramowitz lamenting that right-wing populists have gained votes in parliamentary seats in France, Netherlands, Germany, and Austria during 2017. While they were kept out of government in all but Austria, their success at the polls 
helped to weaken established parties on both the right and the left. So these crazy right-wing populists are a source of the global democratic crisis, right? The, the results of popular elections from this liberal elite perspective, the results of popular elections are a threat to democracy. Authoritarian and autocratic tendencies. You see the pattern looking back now. So notice I can make a, a coherent philosophical exposition of democracy and what threats to it constitute. But all these media presentations about threats to our democracy never bothered to define democracy. Democracy means government of the people, by the people, that the people get to you know vote for their leaders. That's democracy. How, how is Donald Trump and his supporters a threat to that? We're going to be so strong. We're going to be so tough. We're going to be so vicious. And we're going to knock them for a loop. We have no choice. Adding to the Never Trumpers alarm, a dangerous fervor among some of his supporters. Donald Trump liberated a certain... Wait, so is there a dangerous fervor among Donald Trump's opponents? Is there a dangerous fervor among communists? Is there a dangerous fervor among the unanimous you know, news media critiques? Now, I was reading in The Atlantic today that uh, Donald Trump understands the news media better than it does itself. He knows that the more the news media attacks him, the stronger and more fervent his supporters are, and the more it keeps him, Donald Trump, at the center of our national conversation. So this utter inability to see themselves and utter inability to think, you know, oh, are there any fervors against Donald Trump that are dangerous? Is Antifa dangerous? Is Black Lives Matter dangerous? Is the news media's war on cops dangerous? Certain portion of America, hyper-nationalist, reactionary, semi-military elements using the language that was common in these arenas. They saw him as the best hope of translating their paranoia, their contempt, their anxiety, their anger. Wait, their paranoia that they're being replaced? Uh, their paranoia that uh, their group has less power, less influence, that their group is being discriminated against actively. Uh, that's just paranoia. Uh, they don't have any genuine concerns that Trump is responding to. ...into a political platform and into public policy. No, knock the crap out of would you? Just knock the hell out. I promise you, I will pay for the legal fees, I promise there were many, many signals throughout 2016 that this was not just a showman, but no, somebody who had definite authoritarian sympathies. And there was violence at his rallies that he openly encouraged. I mean, it wasn't a joke. There's Wait, th there was violence at about 10% of Black Lives Matter events. There's violence at almost every Antifa event. How come that doesn't discredit Black Lives Matter or Antifa? It only discredits people on the right? There's a guy totally disruptive, throwing punches. I love the old days. You know what they used to do to guys like that when they were in a place like this? They'd be carried out on a stretcher, folks. I'd like to punch him in the face, I'll tell you. That's true. The nastier he got, the more excited the crowd got. And rather than trying to clamp that down and sort of pull back. So Donald Trump's the nasty one, right? The people who are violently opposing him, they're not nasty, right? Antifa's not nasty. 
you know, Black Lives Matter looters, rapists, murderers, they're not nasty. It's only one side that's nasty. Back, he egged on the crowd further, and that dynamic of the angry crowd and the demagogic leader uh, fomenting anger and, and using violent rhetoric uh, was a sign that this is somebody who had no democratic core, liberal democratic core, and, would, and it was not clear what the limits of, of this style of politics were. So I think that was, that was very... Right, so if you don't have a liberal democratic core, you're not a good person. Frightening. Frightening. Right, we've had this massive increase in murder, in death from driving accidents, pedestrian deaths, massive increase in crime over the past two years due to Black Lives Matter and its elite enablers. And somehow that's not frightening. It's the tiny, tiny, tiny amount of MAGA violence that is frightening. With Trump's emerging embrace of authoritarian behavior, a moment of decision for Republicans. They had a choice. They could have taken steps to prevent Trump's nomination, or if that seemed illegitimate because he won the primary, they could have renounced him. They could have refused to endorse him. The Republican Party was the one group of individuals with the power to isolate Trump. Some tried. Donald Trump. Okay, so if you isolate... The, the popular will of much of the population, that's democratic, right? If you isolate and suppress uh, the will of approximately half the country, that's the democratic thing to do. It's a phony, a fraud. His promises are as worthless as a degree from Trump University. This is the party of Abraham Lincoln. This is not the party of David Duke, Donald Trump. But most Republican leaders didn't. I'm going to continue to avoid... Uh, weighing in on the presidential contest at this point. I don't really know him. Um, we're we're going to obviously get to know each other if, if, if he gets the nomination, and we'll cross those bridges when we get to it. And he could be our nominee, but, but I think I don't want to comment on something hypothetical. It was vertigo-inducing because it showed me that either I had gone crazy or everybody else had gone crazy. Mona Charon's conservative credentials were earned in the Reagan White House. She was surprised by what she was seeing among Republicans. I didn't know what world I was living in. It felt really... Yeah, if uh, Mona Charon and her impeccable conservative credentials, if, if they're not venerated, if they don't rule, then that just shows we don't have a democracy, right? If you don't have the right ideology, right? If you don't subscribe to the, the correct interventionist foreign policy, if uh, you don't want to invite you know, the world's teeming masses to this country, then you're not a true Democrat. Bye-bye.